Hey, y'all. We're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was February 14th, 1876. Alexander Graham Bale's lawyer, Marcellus Bailey, filed a patent application titled Improvement in Telegraphy at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Bell, a scientist and inventor, had been working on creating a device that could transmit speech electrically for a while. But other inventors had been trying their hands at creating a telephone, too, particularly engineer Elisha Gray. Gray, a co-founder of the Western Electric Manufacturing Company, had his attorney file a patent caveat for a telephone the same day. A patent caveat is a preliminary patent application where an inventor basically says, hey, I've got an invention, but I'm not quite ready to send in a full application for it yet. Then the inventor gets 90 days to file a normal patent application. And a caveat also puts the patent applications of any similar inventions on hold for 90 days, while the caveat holder gets a chance to file a regular application. Both Gray and Bell had already used the harmonic telegraph to try to transmit speech electrically. But the controversy extends beyond which of them actually invented the telephone first. Many people were in line for that seat on the throne. Whether one inventor stole the other's ideas for the telephone is the real mystery of the hour. As the story goes, Gray's lawyer filed the caveat called Instruments for Transmitting and Receiving Vocal Sounds a few hours after Bailey filed Bell's telephone patent. Bell's patent was the fifth of the day, while Gray's was the 39th. So Bell's paperwork went through first. But at the time, the patent office didn't record the time of day when inventors filed their patents or caveats. And by Gray's account, Gray actually got to the office earlier than Bell. But while Gray's caveat went to the bottom of the basket and stayed there until it was sent to the examiner the next day, Bell's filing fee was documented immediately and his application was fast-tracked to the examiner. Because Bell and Gray's patents were so similar, the patent office put Bell's application on hold. The office was set to wait until Gray turned in his full patent application to start investigating any interferences between the two applications and to determine who had invented the telephone first. But Gray abandoned his caveat at his lawyer's suggestion, so that priority of conception went to Bell. And on March 3rd, Bell was granted patent number 174,465 for his telephone, and the patent was officially published on March 7th. Three days later, Bell successfully used the telephone model he created, telling his assistant Thomas Watson, quote, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Bell had won the patent to the telephone itself and the concept of a telephone system. But that's not where the story ended. Over the next decade, a number of conspiracy theories popped up. There were suspicions that Gray had stolen Bell's ideas for the telephone 
and that Bill might have known about Gray's confidential caveat. The trustworthiness of the patent examiner that looked over both inventors' patents was called into question. And Bell's lawyers were accused of fraud in that they had stolen the concept of variable resistance from Gray's caveat and put it on Bell's patent application. A federal government lawsuit was brought against Bell on the request of the Pan Electric Telephone Company, which had sold shares of its stock to government officials. And from there, the Pan Electric Telephone Company and Attorney General Augustus Garland became embroiled in a scandal. The Bell companies had to defend their patents in hundreds of cases, but Bell never lost. The American Bell Telephone Company was doing well, and people began to despise the Bell Company's monopoly. But it only grew more successful. While Elisha Gray was alive, many believed him to be the true inventor of the telephone. And some people still maintain that he is, though his contributions to the development of the telephone have been totally overshadowed by Alexander Graham Bell's presence. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow. Hello, everybody. I'm Eves, and you're tuned into This Day in History class, a show where we travel back in time one day at a time. The day was February 14, 1949. Miners in and near the town of Asbestos, Quebec, in Canada, went on strike. The strike helped lead to the Quiet Revolution, a time of political and social turbulence in the province of Quebec during the 1960s. Asbestos is a silicate mineral used in fabrics in fire-resistant and insulating materials. Now, asbestos is known to cause cancer and other serious health issues. But in 1949, people around the world used asbestos in common products like home insulation, packing materials, brake pads, and electrical wiring. And Quebec supplied most of the world's asbestos. Asbestos was a mining town in Quebec's eastern townships. The miners there were demanding higher wages, paid holidays, union participation and management of the mines, a pension, and company action to protect workers against illness caused by asbestos exposure. But the negotiations that took place between December of 1948 and February of 1949 went nowhere. Both parties were required to go to arbitration, but because the government favored pro-business arbitrators, the miners were sure that arbitration would not turn out well for them. So at a general assembly of miners on February 13th, the miners decided to go on a strike. Early on February 14th, the strike began. Workers from Thetford Mines, Quebec, also joined the strike. The miners were represented by the Canadian Catholic Confederation of Labor, a group of unions that the Catholic Church established in 1921 to counter the anti-clerical and socialist influence of international unions. But Maurice Duplessis, the premier of Quebec, and the conservative Union Nationale Party that he led, supported imperialist interests and undermined unions. The government declared the strike illegal and sent provincial police to asbestos. 
The Catholic Church largely supported the strikers, which was significant because it usually sided with Duplessis' government. Joseph Charbonneau, the Archbishop of Montreal, gave a speech in which he said that, quote, the working class is the victim of a conspiracy aimed at crushing them. And when there is a conspiracy to crush the working class, it's the church's duty to intervene. He even called for people to donate to the strikers' families. But Duplessis pushed the church to get the archbishop to resign, and Charbonneau ended up becoming a chaplain in Victoria, British Columbia. But the Johns Manville Company, which owned the mine many of the workers were employed at, hired replacement workers. The strikers set up roadblocks to keep the workers from getting to the mines, and the strike became violent. Police attempting to break the picket lines attacked strikers with tear gas, and strikers beat and disarmed police. More heavily armed police were sent into asbestos, and on May 6, they arrested around 200 people, though most were soon released. Just over a week later, the union leaders were arrested on conspiracy charges. The violence that erupted as part of the strikes garnered media attention. Archbishop Maurice Roy of Quebec City mediated the strike as it dragged on. On July 1st, the strike finally ended when the two sides reached an agreement. Miners got a wage increase of five cents per hour rather than the 15 cents that they wanted. But their health and safety demands were not addressed, and many of them did not get their jobs back. Labor unionist Jean Marchand, journalist Gérard Pelletier, and union activist Pierre Trudeau all played significant roles in the strike. They eventually transitioned into political careers and became known as the Three Wise Men. The strike marked a turning point in Quebec's history and set the stage for the Quiet Revolution, a time of rapid change in the province. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at TDIHC Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.